They're all here. The divas, princes, and living legends you should be obsessed with. Sitting down with me. I'm David Goldberg. These are the Luminaries. With his new podcast project, Dear Family, Tommy O'Malley aims to find peace, both as a gay man in the community and with his own biological family. He joins me to talk about activism, reconciliation, and how, famously, conflict is not abuse. Tommy O'Malley, welcome. Um, This is a dream come true for a lot of reasons. I have to say, you look... I'm like, because we're in winter, but you look like ruddy. You look kind of like King David was described, where you have like red cheeks. You look like tan. You look very handsome. Thank you. You look like alive. So do you. You're iridescent. Thank you. <laughs> I'm loving this material. What is the material on this? I assume it's a shirt. fake silk. I got it in mm-hmm. Beacon's closet. There's some Thank sort you. of plastic. Yeah, it's highly flammable. But it shimmers and that's what matters. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like all of us, plastic and shimmery, <laughs> if we're doing it right. So we have a lot to get into, um, but we're, you know, this episode is framed around the launch of your new project. So I think let's just start with what the project is. Okay, so I am releasing a podcast. Um, I think the day before this releases, uh, we're in the time machine, so we're recording this a couple of weeks before I release it. Um, but I was, the name of the podcast is called Dear Family, and it is a narrative podcast, a very personal narrative podcast. Um, and in the first episode, I sort of say this podcast was born uh, – on December 24th, 2017, when I sat down to write a letter to my immediate family after a particularly difficult year in our history uh, to invite them to know a little bit more about my history as I've lived my life apart from the nuclear family I was born into uh, and discovered this other family that I'm a part of, uh, this family, this tribe of gay people, I use the word gay. Um, maybe it's because I am often referring to other gay men, cis gay men. Maybe it's because I just use the word gay. I, I haven't figured it out. I know language is very important, but in general, when I say gay or when I say faggot, I'm I'm kind of referring to anybody that is willing to fall under that umbrella. Yeah, it's not about gender, it's not about identity, but it is about. It's more about ideology. At this point. And we can get into that in a little bit. But people that are in that family with me, um, I wanted to let my family that I was born into, the nuclear family, know that I'm okay because I was able to find this other family. And I don't mean it uh, – it's not an offensive move. Uh, it's, it's really because and it's not defensive either. It's really just so that we can all get right with our history. Mm-hmm. And I can't with my immediate family reconcile where I'm at today as a gay man living in New York city. If I don't give them the opportunity to know what that means to me. And my family is very traditional and I have a lot of compassion for them, uh, because we can't really help the circumstances into which we were born. We definitely can't help the time into which we were born. So the trauma that I carry from growing up in that family, when I started to write this letter to them on December 24th on a bus ride, on a Lucky Star bus, 
from Chinatown in New York City to Chinatown in Boston for Christmas. God bless you. Three months after my mother had called the cops on me to get out of her house after we got into a fight. (laughs) Um, Nobody was arrested. Don't worry. We're just Irish. This is how we fight. (laughs) And uh, as I was writing that, I was filled with venom. I was filled with anger. And um, a friend of mine assisted Billy Porter on a play. And my friend relayed this message. And I really like Billy Porter. I think Billy Porter is uh, one of our kings, one of our queens in this tribe yeah. that we can all look to. And and the phrase that my friend used that Billy uses is uh, holding your hand on the door of bitterness. So I started writing this letter. And over the course of two years, it swelled to truly over 50 pages. Mm. And I, there was a lot of bitterness. My hand was on the door of bitterness for a lot of it. And I didn't want to send it. And I knew that sending it from a place of bitterness was the wrong move. Because like I said, this letter is my effort to make peace and restore joy to our story. Now, at the same time, I also say this letter was born in the summer of 2014 when my friend Francine Volpe uh, another one of our, um, I would, I would, she's one of our princesses yes. <laughs> in the tribe. Uh, she is royalty, and she, in her own right, is a great thinker, a great playwright. She said to me, Sarah Shulman is a living genius, and her book, Gentrification of the Mind, is required reading. And I listened to that, and I went and I read gentrification of the mind immediately. And one thing that that book did is it opened me to the idea that 9-11, which is always the way to get my attention, is say 9-11 and I'm 100% on board. 9-11 gentrified our true national tragedy in this country, which was the AIDS crisis. So that sent me down this rabbit hole of what does that actually mean? And I also say in the podcast, in the first episode, uh, this podcast was born in the summer of 2011, shortly after I had moved to New York City, and I went with a couple of friends to go see a production on Broadway of Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart. And as I was leaving the theater, Larry Kramer himself uh, handed me a letter that he had written to all young gay people. to pre- to I, th- I think it started like, to my precious younger gay brothers or something. And so I forget how, it, but it was something like that. And encouraging us to keep fighting for our culture and for one another. Mm. And I also say that it started in 1982 when I was born in Boston, Massachusetts to my parents. And and this is my family. And I think for a lot of us in this tribe, one thing that I've realized is that living in New York City, which was the epicenter in a lot of ways for a very difficult time in our period, of course, the AIDS crisis, um, that, that the that our parents are Sarah Shulman and Larry Kramer. They are the gatekeepers of that history, and they are the ones telling what I accept as the truth, as what I accept as the most honest representation of what happened. Honest doesn't mean right. It doesn't mean factually accurate. And actually, uh, we can get into this, but a lot of what Larry Kramer says, you're like, is that that true? Right. but that was something that was so special about – that is something that's so special about this history. And Sarah herself, as I've gone down the rabbit hole, she did this thing called the Act Up Oral History Project. 
And it's a series of 187 interviews she conducted with Jim Hubbard, uh, her creative partner, who's a filmmaker, with whom in 1987 she founded the Mix Festival, the Gay and Lesbian Experimental Film Festival right. here in New York. So they've been working together forever, and they lived through it. And then they went from 2000 and I think one to 2015, interviewing 187 different members of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which was the action organization that that was doing all of the demonstrations, that was going to St. Patrick's Cathedral, doing die-ins, having some faggot dressed as Jesus, parading around, prancing around at the front on the altar. Uh, they were the ones throwing their friends' ashes on the White House lawn. Fuck. They were the ones who got drugs fast-tracked through the FDA. They're the reason we have Housing Works, an organization that works at the intersection of homelessness and HIV. Right. And that was an organization founded by Larry Kramer, for anybody who's listening that doesn't know that. Um, so not only are Larry and Sarah the gatekeepers of this history, but they actually created the history. Larry especially, he founded Gay Men's Health Crisis, then he founded ACT UP. Sarah herself doing this ACT UP oral history project has given us an archive we can look to. It's a roadmap for how to quote-unquote resist. It's a, it's a roadmap for how we can be empowered as a tribe, as a family, as a community. And I became kind of obsessed with it in the same way that as a kid when I found out about the Holocaust, I became obsessed with the Holocaust. I became really obsessed with AIDS. And I started reading everything that I possibly could because of these two people. And and the way that they wrote about it, um, Larry's so angry. Sarah is so sure of her of, of what's morally right and what's morally wrong. And that's not something that I've ever been. Sure yeah. of what's right, sure of what's wrong. And I don't necessarily think that Sarah's always right, and I don't think that Larry's always right, but I love that they get messy. And from their example, I'm kind of using that archive that Sarah created. I'm using the decades of writings that Larry has accumulated about who we are as a culture, starting with faggots in 1977, I think that came out, um, where he turned a really critical eye on on gay men um and with sarah who wrote from reagan up until now about where the culture was going for the most part she's been dead on about where we are so using their writings using their works using their examples i am kind of reflecting on my own personal narrative in this and stacking up what my experience as this gay, white, cis guy who's 36 years old today as we record this, who grew up in Boston in a really Irish Catholic family that was anti-gay, that was racist, that was all the things you think an Irish Catholic family in Boston would be. Right. And absorbing the self-loathing associated with that kind of a culture because – when I say things like I was abused or I was beaten, I don't say it as a power move. I don't say it to be sensational. It's just what my experience was. And it's the experience of a lot of people I grew up with. It's That was the community that the Irish and Italian Catholics I grew up around who looked to pedophile priests and criminals like Whitey Bulger as the leaders of our community. While at the same time ignoring the suffering of gay people because they were sinners that was happening Right. In our backyard, essentially, because there were gay people in Boston. Boston is an interesting place because Boston was the place where they put the sickest among them at the front of the pride parade, <laughs> wheeling the the, the yeah. truly dying people among them, their their sickest family members at the front of the pride parade. So that 
the newspapers had no choice but to take their picture. And people had no choice but to look at them. Unless it was in your family where you were told to look away. Am I correct? Well, that is, well in 1993, uh, at the St. Patrick's Day Parade, there was a court order in South Boston, which is where my mother's from. I was raised in a different part of Boston, but Southie is like, you know, the Irish hood right. in Boston that was controlled by Whitey Bulger. The, the, he used to be the number one most wanted criminal on the FBI's most wanted list until 9-11. So 9-11 also gentrified his, his criminal record. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he was also apparently, by the way, interestingly enough, Whitey Bulger, this is just off topic, was apparently he started his career as a gay hustler at this in Bay Village in Boston. Which is what's even more disappointing about the Johnny Depp movie because it's like I would love to see a Johnny Depp movie involving him being a gay hustler. But, of course, it's like an all-mask version. Yeah, of course. But And they were were so faggy, those like Irish mobsters. They Uh, were like obsessed with cleanliness. Everything had to be very clean. mm -hmm. Like if you're not getting fucked in the asshole, why do you care so much about being clean? That's basically how I feel about that. So so at the 1993 St. Patrick's Day Parade – there was a judge who ordered the parade organiza- organizers to let this gay group, uh, I think it was gay veterans, I can't remember, march in the parade. And I remember the atmosphere along the parade route was very tense that day. Um, and my family was going through its own trauma. A few blocks away from the parade route, like the week before that, the house my mother grew up in, the house that my mother's sister still lived in with her seven kids at that point, um, burnt down and my cousin died. So my family was really in mourning and we were at the parade. I didn't put this together until I started like writing this letter that this is what was happening. This was the context of where we were when this parade happened that the gays were going to march in. Um, but in, in lining up the dates, I was like, oh shit, this was a week after Greg died. Fuck. So we're really, we're, we're, we're in a dark place. He was 22 at the time. And... I remember when the gay group started approaching, seeing shit flying at them. People were throwing like bottles and things at them. And I remember seeing that happen. And I remember my mother saying, turn around. Don't look at them. (laughs) (laughs) And it it was like so – it's so interesting to me still that in our darkest moment – are the impulse – and this isn't just about my mother because my mother yeah. has done amazing work. This is the community. This is everybody. This is the the tribe that I was raised in that I never thought I would get out of. Mm, the impulse was not, oh, they're suffering too because all those gay people – this is 1993 – were going through hell. Now I know that. I didn't know that then. I didn't really know what AIDS was. Maybe I knew – I probably knew like the Ryan White story or something but that, that there was – a limit to the empathy that we were able to access at our lowest point is a lesson that I still think about. And in writing that letter, as I was rereading it, as I've reread it and edited it and, you know, blew it up to over 50 pages, uh, I realized I couldn't send it because by keeping my hand on the door of bitterness when I was writing it, by writing it from a place of victimhood, by not honoring the intention to make peace and restore joy, it was completely self-serving. It is so much harder for me to just release all of that as I've been writing this, as I've been doing this, and to share it. Um, it's been much more difficult, and it's been very scary uh, because on the one hand, I don't want I don't want to let other people's ideas about what I'm doing impact 
what I'm doing. And so I don't think I'm going to really do social media for this. I'm just okay. going to let the conversations exist. I'll, I'll put it out on my social media. But I'm not trying to promote it. I want to create an opportunity for us as a community. And this is kind of post-Trump. Like, I feel like we've been in a really toxic place and people really want to keep the fight going. Um, and yeah, is- we've been in Rose McGowan world. We have been. I mean, and I love Rose McGowan. And you are (laughs) like her in a lot of ways in terms of you're ready for a fight always. You're looking sometimes for a fight. The trauma in her I recognize. Yeah. There's not one thing I don't believe that she says. Oh, I agree. I think everything she says is exactly how it went down. She's just a lunatic who cannot keep it together. That's – to me, I think she gets – I completely agree. I'm like so on board. I do. She, to me, she's more of a cautionary tale because I see she. I think she gets lost in in the fight, in the rage. Mm. Anyway, sorry, sorry. Back no, to and that's saying. that's very true. And I have gotten. I mean, listen, I'm not afraid to fight people I've never met. There are a bunch of gays I've never met that I've started fights with <laughs> <laughs> on social media. And when I meet people, like we went to Fire Island, David, you and I, yeah. as you know, we walk into the house and there were two separate people I had gotten into arguments with, kind of on social media. Oh, amazing. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because when you're face to face with people, uh, it's much easier. To make peace yeah. than it is when you're hiding behind the safety of your screen. And you can't deny a person's humanity when you're looking them in the eye. And so a part of this podcast project that I'm working on is every month using – so tomorrow, just to backtrack a bit, uh, by the time we've read this, this will be in the past and this will be an episode that's going to be released of Dear Family. You and I are going to sit in my apartment tomorrow night and read verbatim the interview that Sarah Schulman – Conducted with Larry Kramer in 2003 or four, 2003 for the ACT UP Oral History Project. And to date, I've read a lot of stuff. I haven't read everything. There's so much out there. But I've read a bunch of stuff about that history of HIV AIDS. And um, this is the most compelling document. I have to say, you know, I had never read Sarah Shulman until we rehearsed this a week ago, and then you gave me a copy of her book, Stage Struck, which is about how Jonathan Larson lifted the, the entire plot of Rent from her book. And all the gay shit, most importantly. All the gay shit, and mm-hmm. basically about how Rent um, – her original book, uh, People in Trouble, is about gay people, queer people banding together in the face of AIDS, and it gets turned into this billion-dollar enterprise about straight people triumphing while AIDS is happening. Anyways, I have to say that reading that and starting this book, I already feel major changes in my personal life. The the Larry Kramer piece, it, it, basically the piece is Sarah Shulman and Larry Kramer looking back and Sarah Shulman kind of asking Larry Kramer to take accountability and like, you know, when did you go too far? What worked? Why did it work? And what I really got from it, and it really woke me up, um, just back to what you were saying about um, kind of the family systems we come from, you know, I I feel like from my history of abuse, I like default to this place of like, I don't know what's going on. I'm not, ta- I'm not responsible for anything. Like, I'm just like this baby, leave me alone. And Larry Kramer's thing is like, just do, 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 do. It doesn't matter if it works or doesn't, but like you need to start fucking taking action one way or the other and take some responsibility. And if it fails, you'll just do something else. And what's so great about that interview is 
she's trying to ask him about a lot of his like plan for ACT UP and he's like there's no plan we just needed to take action because people were dying and reading that I could just feel in my life I that night I was like you know what here are some areas where I need to kind of like put a foot down about what causes I believe in what I could be doing what I could be saying what my power needs to be used for let's just fucking do it so I want to thank you for that, and and her book is really expanding my my understanding about how within our community there's so much hate and betrayal, and about the types of stories we tell. Mm. So thank you for that. Mm. Well, thank you to Sarah. You know, I mean, and to be honest with you, Sarah is somebody whom I brought this initially. I was working for th- just like this is how this really began with Sarah and the Act Up Oral History Project is I was working with a theater company and I brought the archive to the artistic director of the theater company and I said, we should do something with this. Yeah. And I set up a meeting with him and Sarah and there was a meeting and I'll let Sarah speak about that if she ever wants to speak about that. But it was not a fit. Okay. The long and short of it is that it was not a fit between the company and Sarah in this project. Um, and I encouraged her to not do anything with them as I left the company because I didn't think that it would be respected in the way that it is. And this is what's amazing about the Act Up Oral History Project. Um, it's in the public domain. And this is what's so radical and queer about it. I mean, queer is a weird word for me to use. I feel weird using it. I, I, I feel queer, but I don't – I don't know. Queer feels like it might mean something else when I say it sometimes. I'm not really sure about it. That's why I say gay. But uh, – and Sarah's somebody who's like very comfortable in queer circles. She's like definitely somebody who I think is much less problematic than I would be in certain queer circles because of the associations that I keep or whatever. Um and I'm not speaking for Sarah, and I don't really have Sarah's permission to be doing what I'm doing, other than she gave all of us this gift. Exactly. Of putting her work and Jim's work in the public domain. Yes. And so tomorrow, we're going to read this interview with about 10 people total in my living room, and then we're going to have a discussion about it. And then next month, there's a whole mess happening at Housing Works right now. Housing Works is the organization I mentioned earlier that works at the intersection of AIDS and homelessness. I know you know about it because you do a show there, have done a show there. And I ran the marathon for Housing Works. I'm friendly with one of the founders of Housing right. Works. And I, I I have so much respect for that organization. My personal politics are that I'm pro-worker to a fault. Even if right. I have questions about the workers, I'm always going to come down on the side of workers. Yeah, me too. And there's a union issue at, at Housing Works. The workers at Housing Works right now are trying to unionize. And Housing Works has retained this law firm that is known for union busting. They fought Cesar Chavez in California. They fought United Steelworkers a couple of times. They helped draft this law in the 1940s, 1950s that really gutted the power of unions uh, in this country. So so that's really devastating to me that that's happening and uh, – at the next kind of living room chat, whatever I'm calling these, is going to be about a half an hour of edited transcripts from these interviews addressing the formation of Housing Works and the intention of what Housing Works was because there's a lot there. Eric Sawyer, one of the founders of Housing Works, is in it. Uh, Charles King, the CEO of Housing Works, he was interviewed for the Act Up Oral History Project too, I believe. Um 
and, and, and look for answers to how can we address this within our tribe, within our family. Dear family, how do we fix this? Because we don't, the, I don't want to promote cancel culture. I don't want to be yeah. a part of the boycott machine. I don't want to hurt queer organizations that have a history of doing good because right now they're fucking up. How do we get better? And this is one thing that I've learned from Larry and from Sarah. Sarah wrote a whole book about this called Conflict is Not Abuse. Mm. When you have conflict with somebody, it is our obligation as family members, as tribe members, to sit with one another and work through it. And we can do that. We can do it. And I think that the way we do it, people always say those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. We're in this like red scare moment where all of our enemies become Russian, as though we have not been in this moment before in our history, as if – what happened between the United States and Cuba? A family. We are a continental family. And we tried to suffocate an entire country because of this Red Scare bullshit. Not to get too political about it, but why are we doing this again? Why are we, why are we calling people Russians? Why is that the insult? Because I don't think a lot of us actually think about what that means. Do we want to end up like people in Hong Kong where – now, that's a totally different situation, but do we want to be lighting one another on fire? Right. That's my question. Is that what we want this to escalate to? Because growing up in the community and the family that I grew up in, I know that violence only ever escalates to really tragic ends. Me and too. it's it, – I don't, I don't want to see that happen to us as, as a tribe. As we get our rights, as we become part of this war machine that we – as we look at the system that's built on war, that's what our system is built on. The only reason we're able to be doing what we're doing right now is because all the shit that's in this recording studio was built by some worker in another country mm -hmm. that is doing our bidding. I mean, that's really what that's how we survive. That's how we thrive. I don't want to contribute to that violence as much as possible. I'm also not such an idealist where I think like, OK, I'm going to go move to the woods and become the Unabomber or something. No, I, you want to get in it. You I'm know, I, it. I do want to thank you for – taking a lead on this housing works conversation because specifically I've been paralyzed from doing anything. I have a show there in January. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to get my hands dirty, all of it. I didn't want to participate in cancel culture, but I also just didn't want to take responsibility. And after we talked and after we read the Larry Kramer thing, I was like, okay, I'm just not going to do my show there and I'm going to figure it out. And I invited... And the, the invitation stands. Anyone who's in the union, if they want to come on this podcast and talk about their experience or how we could all support them, I would love for them to join. But it's something. Um, back to what you were saying about Sarah and Larry. What I think is really interesting about that is, you know, I think all history is, of course, historiography. Um, and even history is told by those who have been oppressed. You know, if you look at um, Jewish history – even when the Jews were being like attacked by the Romans, allegedly, it's our history of it is very warped. It's not super accurate. It turns them into maybe bigger villains than they were. There's a lot. Josephus is the one who fucked it up. What's interesting and I think revolutionary about this queer version about the act of oral history about what Larry and Sarah left behind is – they admit that it's a historiography. They say, yes, this is totally subjective because everyone was fucking dying. We're just the ones who got saddled with it. We're going to do our best, but it really is – we are really leaving this to you. This isn't about our legacy. This is about you like 
catching everyone back up so that we can move on. And there are deeply contradictory stories told Mm -hmm. across the archive. People have radically different interpretations of events. Events that were filmed, people have different interpretations of how they actually went down. Yeah. Like Stop the Church, like when people went to St. Patrick's and they were dancing around as Jesus up front and dying in the aisles. People have really different interpretations. And one of the things that I think is so powerful in the interview with Sarah, to go back to the, the issue of violence, is at one point Sarah asks Larry, why do you think at no point did anybody dying of AIDS try to take people out with them? Yes. And that really uh, – that, that question, more so even than Larry's answer to that question because Larry's like, well, I had fantasies. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah, I yeah. wanted everybody to take target practice. <laughs> Larry wanted to arm everybody. But Larry's – you know, but I mean Sarah once said Larry's legacy will work itself out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean and Larry says shit. I mean talk about cancel culture. You can't cancel Larry Kramer. However – Reading this interview that you and I are going to read, there's a bunch of cancelable shit yeah. that Larry Kramer says in the interview. But you can't cancel GMHC. You cannot cancel ACT UP. The whole thing of there was no plan. Exactly. Just do it. But to go back to violence, there's nowhere in, in the archive that really demonstrates that we, our tribe, fights wars with violence. We fight wars by dressing up as Jesus. We fight wars by protesting dressed as Dorothy outside of Trump Tower. We protest by infiltrating society parties. We fight wars by infiltrating society parties in drag, passing as women, and then causing chaos when we reveal ourselves to be a bunch of faggots dressed in drag. And all of the Upper West Siders and all the Upper East Siders who are attending these parties at the plaza, I think it happened at the plaza, um, start freaking out and they're completely scandalized and it's drawing attention and it's drawing attention and it and it worked. I mean, the reason why I think that that Broadway ballad um, by Sondheim, I'm Still Here, which has been done by like Patti Lapone, Elaine Stritch is such a iconic one. And the reason why gay men will spend thousands of dollars in 2019 to see Madonna or Cher get wheeled out onto a stage even okay, though they're whoa, in their hundreds. The Cher, I've seen her twice. I just want to be very clear. No, no, no. She looks fantastic. She does not She's get wheeled out. No, 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 yeah, yeah, I know okay, what you okay, okay, okay. But I think <laughs> more than anything, like, to us what matters isn't, like, triumph or victory or legacy. It's actually just, like, I'm actually still fucking here. Mm-hmm. That's, for us, like surviving and proving to all the people who said, you know, you'll die of AIDS or this is a phase or whatever. For us, number one victory is like, we didn't go anywhere. We're still here, bitch. We survived. Mm. That's why we love longevity. I I don't, that's why I don't think we cleave so much to narratives of like exactly war or triumph or we defeated some, you know, that's just, I, I think those aren't even the terms because we know that like defeating the other side isn't possible if we care about those terms. I don't think we're, we, you know, I don't think we're really attached to an outcome of like taking over the world. Well, I think that this summer I went to Fire Island for the first time and I really had a tremendous insight into if there is a purpose for us, why are we here? Mm-hmm. I would say that we and our tribe are put on this earth to tend to its beauty, to remind people of the beauty of this life. And 
we are still here despite centuries of people trying to erase us in a lot of different ways. And I think that the reason that I'm doing this as a dear family structure, and every episode begins with dear family, uh, is in part by using my specific family. I'm inviting them, these straight people, to understand that this is this is my role because it is my other family's role. Right. To remind you of the beauty and to restore the joy into our structure, into our family structure, and to remind gays that, that that's why we're here. We're here. I met these two guys, Sumner and Roy, who are in their 80s, who have over the last 50 years bought up three adjacent properties in Fire Island and have created – I mean, they're wealthy, but they've created Middle Earth – I mean, yeah. it's like the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. There's there's a pond on their property. In the, it's an oasis in an oasis. And they just spend their last years from April until October every year tending to this incredible garden, tending to the beauty. And going to Fire Island, as hedonistic as it is, and it is truly – you see what we – you see why we are the way we are. You understand how things – can go horribly wrong because left to our own devices as gay men, I mean, it's just we do, we we don't. As as a guy I know and respect very well once said to me, "It's a blessing and a curse to be insatiable." And so we have an insatiable craving for beauty yeah. in one another, in the world around us. It's one of the reasons I think we're so campy that 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 drive for just excess, more, give us more, yes. Yeah. Um, but there's such joy in that. It's it's risky. It can turn toxic and it can turn fascist, but I think in itself it's very pure. Exactly. It's like everything. You know, it's not one or the other. We have to be careful because we do have tremendous power. And when we use our power against one another, when we weaponize that against one another, it's it's brutal. But I think we can look to this archive of interviews as an example of how not to let that happen because yeah. when it was the worst, we came together. And I really want my family as much as – I, you know, I when I've gone to Fire Island, I went twice this summer. Once with me, which was amazing. It was amazing. Too short, but it was amazing. And once with a bunch of guys that I work with. Um, and it was bittersweet both times because there was this feeling of – belonging that I had never felt. I'm 36 and I hadn't felt that before. And I've been to Provincetown because there were truly no straight people around. I know. And no children. No children, no cops that I could see for right. that first time, especially when we went. And you notice, I know that you can pick them up from literally a mile away. Well, they love me. I've been <laughs> arrested three times, obviously. <laughs> I have a gold tooth. I mean, I really just like play the part of the Irish villain from Boston, but it's only because that's authentically who I am. And... um I think that that feeling of being in a community that was so self-governed and so peaceful really just opened my mind and kind of laid the groundwork for me to be able – because I've been tossing around what is this going to be? Because yeah. I've been looking at the ar- archive, the Act Up Oral History archive for two and a half years now, <sighs> figuring out what what I was going to do because I knew I had to do something with it. And I knew that I wanted to inspire other people to use it as well because it's in the public domain and it is our history and it gives us a roadmap for how to be. This is what happens when we come together. This is what we can do. Right. 
um, without being like twee about it or being too hopeful because there was a lot of mess and there was a lot of mess. And it seems like when the stakes were life and death, there was a lot of wiggle room for people to be messy. And now that we don't have those stakes, now that we have our rights, now that straight people have said, okay, you're us now, there's not a lot of acceptance for mess. And people get – this is where cancel culture comes in. Yeah. Um, when people get messy, people kind of like turn around, walk away, keep their distance rather than like reaching out a hand to be like, OK, how do we make this more peaceful? How do we end this conflict? Instead, it's just, you know, people are quote tweeting one another mm-hmm. and it's I got you and oh, you know, the ratioing and everybody's just out for it. And When we were in Fire Island, we were talking about pop stars and there was this moment where we were talking about Sam Smith and I said something like, I'm supposed to hate him, right? I can't remember. And Pat, Pat Riley, who was on this podcast, was like, he's fine. Like, he's fabulous. He's doing great. He can gain weight. He can lose weight. He can try pop. He can try dancing. He's great. I love him. Like, there's no reason to have any, like, what are you doing? You know, which is like, oh, yeah, I forget because I think it's de rigueur to just like, Something will come up about some person in the community and then we can finally trash them rather than deal with why why have we allowed – you know, why why do we keep ourselves suppressed? Why can't we let one of our own get to a certain place, you know? Why, what jealousies do we have? What fear? What uh, internalized hatred? Well, I can't talk about Sam Smith without talking about Lance Black, the guy who wrote – Dustin Lance Black. Dustin Lance yes. Black. Um, the guy who wrote Milk and in his Oscar speech dedicated it to the precious uh, souls or whatever, whatever precious, unique creatures of value all the young gays watching at home were. And then Sam Smith, I don't know what the fuck happened. I just remember Dustin Lance Black tweeted something. Hey, keep your hands off my boyfriend because he has that child bride who is right. an Olympian. Lance, Dustin Lance Black Yeah, he's does. like 23. Yeah. And um, and I found it so mean, girl. It was Me so mean. And, and there was something very suburban about it. There was some sort of, like, entitlement. And it's the, th- it's the thing that I think bums me out about living in New York. The one thing that really bums me out is this sort of, like, suburban influence as it manifests in our tribe. The people that came from outside the cities and brought their desire to get a smoothie and a juice and a bowl all in the same place. So that's the only place you can get a bite to eat now in New York City. I know. Is a smoothie bowl, (laughs) juice place. And we're all doing the same things. And it's like all part of the same same culture of just assimilation where we're becoming whatever. Sarah Shulman talks about homo-nationalism, people that are given their rights, gays that are given their rights and then become allied with the state. Now, that's like a pretty radical. But that happens with Jews too. It's very weird. Well, also, it's worth noting that both Larry Kramer and Sarah Shulman are deeply Jewish. Yeah. So (laughs) this entire endeavor is inspired by our Jewish mother and father. I mean, I say dear family. I talk about my mother and father, Mickey and Joe O'Malley from Boston. (laughs) But I'm also talking about our mother and father, Sarah Shulman and Larry Kramer. And it's not just about the binary like male, female. But I'm really compelled by this idea of a masculine and feminine deity that exists within all of us that we all have access to. And kind of using Larry and Sarah as the stand-ins for that concept of uniting something that's been withheld from us, from me anyway, as a Catholic. There's, there's 
there's such a patriarchy in Catholicism that we think that God is actually three separate men and one. <laughs> but at the same time, we have a workaround, which is the Blessed Mother. Right. Who is the only person ever assumed fully body and soul into heaven. So she's the same as a deity, but she's not a deity because she's a woman. It's the same idea as like Mary Magdalene, the prostitute that Jesus was friends with, who apparently wrote a book of the gospel, who wrote her own gospel. I and it's in- don't know how to love him. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. <laughs> Little Andrew Lloyd Webber moment. Um, I learned most of what I know about like the Old Testament from Andrew Lloyd Webber, to be honest with you, and Joseph in the Dream Code. <laughs> That's like about the extent of what I know from the Old Testament. I'm the opposite with Jesus Christ Superstar. That's, That's what I know about the New <laughs> Testament. Um, yeah, and so like, you know, like this idea of us coming from this family and and uniting that within us, the masculine and the feminine, and like really embracing that, not in like a mask for mask kind of way, but like understanding our dual nature as humans, especially as people who are born cis men, we have we have all of that in us, like, and we're taught not to have it. I think for like other people, maybe it's not the same thing. I can only speak from my experience as a cis man. And that's like kind of the community that I attach myself to is gay men. But I I really do feel that the family extends to a lot of us because I don't know everything about my siblings that I was born with. Mm. And I don't know everything about my queer siblings and I can't speak for them. But I want to make space for them to experience the joy, the freedom that we all have as the keepers of beauty and remind us that that's why we're here. We're not here to become assets of the state. We're not here. I mean, it is very important for us to have rights. It's very important for us to be able to marry. I don't think that it's just like some dumb construct. Yeah, but it's so not the end game. Equality or like legitimacy is so, if that is the end game, like you can, I could be done now. You could throw me in a So traffic. what do you That's think so the end boring. game is? Because I don't know what the end game is other than like liberation, feeling like there's space for all of us. But I don't even know what that fucking means. It's so nebulous. I think for many reasons, queer people or people in the broader family get to make art. And I think that's the point. Like, we're, we get to make art. We get to make this world art. We get to make ourselves into art. That's kind of what we need to be doing. Mm-hmm. I, we're, we're unencumbered by this this just endless gibberish about reproduction and legacy. And, you know, what's so great about the Sarah Shulman uh, book that you gave me, Stage Struck, is when she's considering suing the Larson estate. This really rocked me to the core. When she's considering suing rent, they say, you know, you could get $25 million if this case works. And she sits down and she says, I don't want $25 million. And, and she has this moment where she's like, when did that even become a thing? I've never thought about $25 million. And you've said this to me too, like, what matters to you? I want to make work that matters. So I think for us, that's the point is like we get to build something new, create something new, create art, create new ways, new systems, but not do the whole reproduction. Mishigas. Um, you know, I have to say, like, what really blew me away, something that you did is I know that you went to Boston and recorded interviews with your mother for this project, which blew me away because that – 
I mean, I'm preparing a new piece, which is probably going to drag my entire family straight to hell. And I am not ready or brave enough to engage in a dialogue with them. You, what I will give you credit for is you will launch yourself into many fights, but you are willing to have a conversation and reconcile. Well, I can't strongly enough recommend reading Sarah Schulman's book, Conflict is Not Abuse, because it really did help me to understand a lot about how I am. Yeah. And the reason that I fight the way that I fight, because she does give voice to people like me, people that feel this rage that feels righteous, but we can't express it in a righteous way. She gives us an opportunity to reflect on why we can't express it that way and also offers examples for how to do it. Yeah. And so with my mother specifically, what I will say, because I already mentioned that she called the cops on me, we have a very difficult history my mother didn't speak to me for six years when I came out. I grew up the way a lot of people I grew up with. And this is something I'm really considering in recording uh, these episodes is the way that I talk about my upbringing because it was very physically violent. There was a lot of hitting. There was a lot of closed fist punching. Mm. Uh, I did end up in the hospital for a week when I was 16 because my brother broke my jaw. Things like that happened to me. And I understand as I get older that that's not everybody's experience. And I can't be too glib about it because that's alienating. And I don't want to be too heavy-handed because I know other people have been through it too. And I want to just be like, this is my experience. I have processed it the way I need to process it personally, and now I want to share it with you mm -hmm. to give context for why I'm able to go to Boston and record an interview with my mother, who I have this history with. And what's important to me is like the, the interview with my mother, it, it's going to be juxtaposed with an interview with this woman named Rosaria Salerno. So at the same time that St. Patrick's Day parade in South Boston was happening, at the exact same time that we were mourning the loss of my cousin Greg, my father was out of work and started working on this guy Jim Brett's campaign for mayor in Boston, 1993. The mayors in Boston up until that point had for 60 years been Irish Catholic guys. And the Irish Catholic guy that was the mayor, Ray Flynn, got appointed ambassador to the Vatican what? by Bill Clinton. So he left, and then there was a three-way race for mayor. This guy, Jim Brett, who was a redheaded Irish Catholic guy that my father worked on his campaign with the idea that if this guy won, my father would get a job in the mm -hmm. city and would he was going to be the savior. There was this guy, Tommy Menino, who... If you know Boston, you know that he won this election. So okay. Brett didn't win. And there was a woman named Rosaria Salerno. Rosaria Salerno was a former nun who was a city councilor. And she got the gay vote. She had the gay vote. That was her market. Um, she was also pro-choice. Even though the mayor of Boston didn't really have a lot to do with abortion, it was important for the Catholics to know that they could have a pro-life person. Tom and Nino was not pro-life, but Brett surely was pro-life. Um, Rosario Salerno, because my family was so Catholic, was a very controversial figure in my house. Not least of all because of the abortion thing, but also because her campaign sign was a single pink rose. And because we're Irish, we're also pagan. And so anytime anyone dies in my family, they become an object. So anytime you see that object oh. after they die, oh, that white butterfly, there's dad. Oh, that dime on the street, there's our cousin Barry. Oh, that ladybug, there's my auntie Kathy. I had a sister who died as a baby in 1987. In October of 1987, in the morning of her funeral, we walked out to go to the mass and there was a single pink rose that had, that had bloomed on my mother's rose bush in front of the house. So from then on, 
a pink rose became a sign of my dead sister, Allison. So this woman, Rosaria Salerno, a former nun who liked gay people and abortion, her campaign sign was a single pink rose. So that was like the final insult. She was really almost like an antichrist figure in my remem- wow. in my memory of that time. I remember such vitriolic conversations about her. And um, I went to Boston and I interviewed her. Uh, and I'm going to juxtapose wow. the conversation I have with Rosaria Salerno with the conversation I have with my mother about that period in our history, about what it was like to be in a city uh, that had this gay population that nobody was really representing. I mean, people were ignoring it, at least in my community. Nobody talked about it. AIDS was this thing that was happening over there. And initially when I had started doing this podcast, I thought it was going to be an AIDS podcast. I actually yeah. thought I was going to call it the AIDS gift shop. Which I'm obsessed with. An and episode will be called. Yeah, good, good, yeah good. well, an episode will be called Where is the AIDS gift shop? <laughs> kind of like there's a 9-11 gift shop. Right. Where is the AIDS gift shop? <laughs> And unpacking Sarah's idea that 9-11 gentrified AIDS is our national crisis. Uh, I won't, I'll, you should read Gentrification of the Mind if you want to understand I'm more doing about that. that. Next, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. And anyone that's listening to this, I can't strongly recommend it enough. Um, so, so that's like part of what's very important to me is showing kind of reconciling for myself and inviting other people to reconcile the way that we were raised – with the way that we now live um, as gay people who were not necessarily – not a lot of us I – I won't even put a number on it. But not all of us were raised in communities that taught us that we were of value. And not all of us were raised with examples of how to cultivate the beauty we were put on this earth to cultivate. And a lot of us that are able to do that and struggle to do that but are, are struggling and are fighting to make that happen for ourselves uh, – can look to this archive. And in in some extent, I want to be able to use this platform, Dear Family, these podcasts, these living room conversations, looking back at our history. I want to invite all of us to kind of reflect on how we did get to be here today creating beauty in spite of everything and because of everything. I guess in conclusion, I... You know, I want to ask because I think – I do think like our world is kind of a beautiful fantasy land and I think what happens is like you said, we bring violence with us from where we come from and that's what turns everything dark within our worlds. I guess I'm wondering do you think for people like us there is a possibility of peace? I know that we're struggling – we are on quest to find it and – I'm curious, since you started this project, if you felt like you've gained peace. Yeah, I do feel like I Good. personally have. I worry. Uh, I think that the the biggest worry that I have is that this becomes self-serving, that this becomes about me and my peace. And it is about that, but at the expense of inviting others to experience peace. Because that's really the goal. I'm, I want to make peace. Um, for myself and for people that touch me. Um, So I think that the example of Sarah and Larry, the example of all of our ancestors who went through something I truly cannot imagine and are still here, 
gives me hope that we can achieve it. And going to places like Fire Island and seeing that when left to our own devices, we do not divide. We unite. I had this long walk from the underwear party in Cherry Grove back to the Pines the last time I went to Fire Island in September with this 62-year-old guy. And we walked along the beach and had a really tender conversation about the last 40 years. And walking through this space that he had been in in the 1980s, and we stopped and got our dick sucked in the meat rack a little bit mm-hmm. until we realized that the guy was tweaking that was sucking our dicks. And we're like, oh, thank you. And just kind of kept moving <laughs> along. And then, you know, I just sort of like took his arm and we strolled and I asked him explicitly, what was it like here? And he said, it was amazing. We all came together. We all just supported one another. Even if we were fighting, we, we were on the same team. And I said, do you still think it's that way? And he said, Absolutely. The stakes aren't the same, but absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And I, and I feel that with you. Yeah, I feel I felt that with all the guys we went to Fire Island with. I feel that when I meet people that I fight with, when I see people that I've had arguments with and I'm able to have a conversation with them and not be my, like, rage case self on the internet trying to get some point across that I'm not actually trying to get across. I'm just trying to release some of the toxicity because yeah. it's an ongoing process. Like, we've talked about this, that the closets never end. We never stop coming out of the closet. And so I'm trying to come out of the closet as a peace lover. Well, I'm also, you know, reading the Sarah Shulman book, so much of it is about basically the way that like the entertainment industry will do certain things for gay male stories. But when it comes to lesbian stories, you know, go fuck yourself. And even reading this book, I'm being confronted by like how how much misogyny plays into my relationship with lesbians and with queer Mm -hmm. women. And, like, what's going to need to change in the way that I interact, in the way that I support queer women. Like, there's so – I'm I, I that lesson, like, it's not – yeah, you don't just, like, get into this community and then we're all good. Like, you really do have to work to, to see your own privilege within this world. Yeah, for me, it's I've, – I've, I'm kind of beyond lesbians. Like, if I had issues with lesbians, I think I worked through them and I, like, really do see lesbians. I work for, like, really powerful, amazing uh, – Yeah. Witches. Right. <laughs> Two lesbians who really have – they're in touch. Like, they got it. Yeah. Uh, they figured out the matrix. And um, – and so I have tremendous it's, – it's straight women that I struggle with mm-hmm. and it's so important to me to get over this misogyny or whatever the word is because misogyny is loaded and sometimes people hear it a different way than I mean it. I just mean like I see a straight woman and I immediately like put my guard up. I know. And I want to get over that because I want to just be like, you know what? My example is peace to you. That's my example. Yeah. And I think there's a time to fight and there's a time to make peace and we're at a time to make peace and – restore the joy into our experience of, as, of being gay people in this culture. So where can we be following you and where can we be getting in on you can find Ground Floor with this podcast? Project? Dear Family on iTunes and SoundCloud because we're posting it. Uh, I'm not really going to be doing a lot of social media. I will post it on my personal social media. I'm not creating social media accounts for Dear Family. Great. I'm just putting it out there and I'm going to let the work work for itself. And if you're ever interested in coming to my apartment to listen 
Find me on social media at Tommy O Faggy, T O M M Y O F A G G Y, on Instagram and at Tommy O'Malley, T O M M Y O M A L L E Y, all one word, at uh, on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I if you want to come and be a part of the conversation and you're in New York and you're not a fucking weirdo, I would love to have you. I mean, we'll do some betting, but I want to invite people from outside of my own community to be a part of this as well and see where it goes. Um, thank you for this. Uh, thank you, David. I am so excited that we're going to be having more and more of these conversations. I love you, and um, I hope you're back again very soon. Thank you. I love you. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luminaries, let me know. Give me a five-star rating on iTunes. Write a glowing encomia. Share it on your Instagram stories. Email it to your Aunt Joan. And help make this series bigger and better with every episode. Thank you for listening, and let's grow together. See you next Tuesday. Bye-bye.